So the title of the talk tonight is Obstacles to Radiant Awareness. So we can't explore a theme or a quality or an ideal without also understanding that which gets in the way of that particular quality or ideal. Just as in the meta practice we did today, we cultivate kindness, but also we run up against the obstacles, numbness, self-hatred, closed heart, hurt heart, etc. In the same way, when we're cultivating an awareness that's open, clear, radiant, we will inevitably come up against that which is seemingly interfering with that. The, the, way, the reason I say seemingly is because the nature of awareness itself, which I'll talk more about probably tomorrow or Saturday, doesn't really have any obstacles to it. But I'll get into that. <laughs> From today's point of view, there it seems there are relative obstacles that obscure that awareness. But, as we will see, that those very obstacles, when they are brought into the light of mindful awareness, they are no longer obstacles, they are simply the next thing to be present with. So, as I said earlier, that mindfulness is contextualized in a path of freedom, and a path that paints the human experience from our current state, of agitation and uh, and uh, dissatisfaction and discontent to one of understanding, wisdom, clarity, compassion. That's the movement. That's that's the context of this practice that we we're, we're orienting ourselves towards. So mindfulness is in support of developing clarity, understanding, self-awareness of the human condition. So we can live and abide in awareness and presence and kindness. And what also mindfulness reveals is how we relate, as we've been pointing to today how we relate to our moment-to-moment experience. Because how we, what attitude that we have to what's happening moment by moment will determine to some degree our state, a relative state of well-being or ease or freedom or entrapment. So one of the things that arises out of this in a very practical way is what in psychology they call response flexibility. Where we are coming up against conditions, situations, experiences, people that we don't like, don't want, are painful, difficult. And instead of shutting down, contracting, hating, blaming, judging, reacting, 
we find a way to see and breathe and move through that responding with some with some wiser action in the context of the eightfold path which is the broader one of the broader contexts for this path wise mind, mindfulness is in service of wise understanding that's in service of wise action wise response so a lovely line summarized beautifully by Viktor Frankl which some of you know he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. Between stimulus and response. Right? Think of all the different stimuli you've had today. Right? People breathing loudly, the food, knee pain, the beautiful weather, things that annoyed you. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our power and freedom to choose our response, theoretically. In our response lies our growth and happiness. So partly what this practice is doing is understanding uh, the deep-seated reactivity to experience and how we can unhook from that reactivity. So we have a non-reactive, responsive, engaged relationship to life. So a little example. Some friend of mine's a monk in Thailand meditating and he's in this forest monastery, so lots of animals, lots of people. And uh, he hears this commotion in the courtyard. He goes out and he sees these dogs, really, where the, the monasteries have a lot of dogs. And the dogs are chasing wildly this uh, big poisonous snake across the courtyard, of which there are many poisonous snakes in Thailand, those of you who've been. And the snake is desperately trying to find a way out to safety back into the, into the forest. And there's a monk sitting with his robes on under a tree, as monks often do. And the, monk, and the snake thinks, that's a pretty safe place to go. So he goes right underneath the monk's robes and tucks himself under the, in between the man's legs. <laughs> that's a large poisonous snake. <laughs> But this monk is, you know, he's a, he's a meditator and he's been practicing for some time. <laughs> and so he just sits without reactivity. Maybe there's reactivity going in his mind, but outwardly he's not reacting, right? The dogs are barking furiously and people are coming over like, oh my God, you know, Ajahn, when Ajahn's a word for teacher and the monk just sits there. And eventually the dogs get bored and they go away and the people get bored and go away and the monk stays there sitting. And eventually the snake realizes it's safe and then coils its way out of the monk's robes and goes back into the woods and on its merry way. That is (laughs) non-reactivity. Par excellence. (laughs) In fact, it reminds me of another story. There was a man on a retreat in Australia well, they also have a lot of poisonous snakes and there was in the, in the outback. And this particular yogi had been working on control issues and needing to let go. And so they're sitting in an indoor-outdoor meditation hall. It has a tin roof and open, open veranda, you know, open, open walls. And when it gets hot on the roof, it gets too hot, the snakes just drop down and just you know, find a cooler way out. So my friend's same same friend who was at the monastery, uh, seems like snakes follow him around. 
So he's um, sitting, they're sitting, he's leading the meditation, and he suddenly hears, help, help. <laughs> and he looks up, and this guy who's got control issues is a snake going like this. He's fallen, fallen onto his lap and went. And he says, is it poisonous? <laughs> and my friend leans over to the owner of the center and he says, is it poisonous? And he, and he says, not really. <laughs> Anyhow, again, you know, this man is forced to deeply let go and surrender and be still. You know, and snakes aren't aggressive unless we are, so they eventually get bored and go away. We have, well, actually, I did see a beautiful snake today. It, wasn't, it was a grass snake. So we do have snakes here, but we don't have them to test you quite as much as in Thailand. So why is that relevant here to what we're doing? So in a line that I, I've come to cherish for, for many, many years now, some decades, there's a beautiful line from the Buddha. He says, um, this luminous, is this luminous is this mind, radiant and brightly shining. Luminous is this mind, radiant and brightly shining. Hence, radiant awareness. But it is obscured by visiting tendencies and habits of mind. Radiant and pure is this mind, but obscured by visiting tendencies of mind. And that word obscured is important. It doesn't mean obliterated. It doesn't mean annihilated. It means temporarily, seemingly obscured. Just like the moon, which is beautifully rising, is in and out of the clouds. Right? The, the, the moon doesn't disappear. It's just obscured from our vantage point. So in the same way, the nature of our mind... Buddha nature, you could say, radiant awareness, wise heart, gets obscured by our own struggles, reactions, tendencies, habits. So what I want to explore tonight are some of those tendencies, which we will know all too well having sat with ourselves for a few days. So... And as I'm talking about some of these tendencies, um, I really want to encourage you to not feel uh, burdened by them as if they're they're bad or wrong. Because when we bring anything into the light of awareness, then we have a chance to transform it. If it's not in the light of awareness, it's unconscious. If it's unconscious, it's acting out. So the more we see... the more chance we have a transformation, and it's also a little humbling, sometimes embarrassing. So this is from an Archbishop, Francoise Fenelon, from way back many centuries ago, uh, in I think um, 16th century. He says, as the light increases, so the light is a metaphor for awareness and meditation. As the light increases, as our awareness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings 
he adds, like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. I wouldn't quite go that far, but you we're know, in medieval Europe here. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we thought. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them gets brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only see, when we start to see these habits, that is the beginning of the cure, right? So rather than be like, oh God, look at this, this terrible reactive tendency of you know, aversion, um, bad person. No, it's like, oh, look at that. I'm glad I'm seeing that because if I'm seeing it, I'm not gripped in it. And the grip and the seeing it is the is the beginning of the non-reactivity. So I'm not telling you anything new that you don't know, but I'm just this is this is really for all of us reminders um, to bear in mind. In the same way that Rumi, I can't remember exactly the line, but he says something like. Um, You know, I bow down, I bow down to all the scrapes and hurts and troubles because they take me one step closer to God. All the troubles and difficulties, it's what makes us do our work. So, we shine the light of awareness on our experience to understand what's here, to understand what's getting in the way of a natural ease and well-being. And to give us a sense of choicefulness. When when we're we're blindly reacting, there's no choice. We're just compulsed. So we're shift. We're we're trying to move from what's a very biologically driven compulsive nature: want pleasure, hate pain, etc. Right? To can I be aware and wakeful and choiceful? I quote this poetry, this line love from the Sufi poet Hafez, who says. We have all the ingredients to turn our life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. A little bit of worry, a little bit of fear, a little bit of grumpiness and comparing and judgment, and we feel like crap. And he says, but he says, and we also have the ingredients to turn our life into, our existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So what we're doing here is cultivating ingredients for our well-being. Presence, awareness, kindness, patience, love, sincerity, Etc. So, regarding obstacles to, in this case, radiant awareness or our well-being, we're wanting to pay attention to three different pieces to it. One is to recognize when they're present, to name them, to acknowledge them, to feel them. Oh, jealousies like this. Not just lost in the spinning of jealousy, but actually, oh, jealousy feels like this. So, acknowledging when they're here. We're also acknowledged, secondly, we acknowledge when they're not here. Because sometimes we think, oh, I'm just full of fear or anxiety or anger or sadness. 
But there are many, many times when those experiences aren't present. And we want to acknowledge those as much as when they're present. And lastly, we want to know the causes for when these difficulties, obstacles arise and what allows them to pass away. One of the main uh, sort of orientations of this tradition is to understand the causal nature. Everything has a cause for it to arise and to pass. If we understand that, we can unhook from that which is, from the things that that are arising that cause suffering, and we can cultivate the causes that allow happiness and peace to flourish. So we'll just have a quick shout out here. What obstacles do you notice to radiant awareness the last two days? In one or two words, just shout out. Any obstacles? Physical pain. pain. Work. Work. Uh huh. Restless thoughts. thoughts. Uh huh. Anything else? Feeling hurt. Hurt. Uh huh. Yeah. Numbness. Vulnerable. Uh huh. So, quantity of meditation. Mm-hmm. That is questionable whether that's a genuine obstacle, but we'll, I'll take it for now as an obstacle for you. <laughs> okay, I get a little sense of the lay of the land. All right, so over these last two days, particularly the first, yesterday, um, the most obvious obstacle or hindrance is our, is our mind. Is, is, is the relentless thoughts and the kinds of thoughts that we inhabit, right, that we live in. We think, what, how many thoughts a day? This research is 50, 60,000 thoughts a day. And I don't know where they get this research from, but 90% of them supposedly from yesterday. So they're mostly repeats, boring <laughs> repeats, but somehow we seem to find them interesting. I don't know how that happens. Another interesting and, uh, w- way we are not present is because we think we know what's happening. We think we know this experience. We think we know about meditation. We think we know about retreat. Oh, yeah, I've done this before. Yeah, I got this one down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we go to sleep. Because right? we're actually not really present. We're present with this idea of what's here, not actually what's here. And then just the simple habit of our restless, distracted, scattered, multitasking mind, attention. So that's the most simplest form of hindrance is just it's hard for us to keep our attention settled in one place, which is why we did that gathering practice yesterday, that settling practice takes more than one day, as you figured out. <laughs> it takes a few years, you know, really. It takes a while for that restlessness to settle. That's why we offer longer retreats here. We do two-week retreats, a month-long retreats, and that might sound like a nightmare to some of you. But in terms of a deep settling and, and deep concentration, you know, it's profound and it's exquisitely sublime. You will experience a, a kind of joy and bliss and tranquility and contentment that you won't experience anywhere else. I can, and from my experience, most 
thoroughly nourishing, joyful experiences, going very deep into a retreat where the mind is so settled and so calm and so pliable and so still and so radiant that it can be exquisite. Right? But that takes some time. It doesn't happen overnight. So one of the threads from that busy thinking mind, and I talked, touched on this a little bit yesterday, I'll say a little bit more about it today. And so the Buddha spoke about five different domains of obstacles that are common, but there are many more, like as I just mentioned some of them, some of the thinking ones. And the first of that mental habit is doubt. How many of you have had some kind of doubt here this last few days? Doubt about yourself, doubt about being here, doubt about me, doubt about the practice, doubt about the spirit rock. Right? I would imagine most of you, if not all of you, have had some kind of wow, you know, that yoga retreat sounded really good now. You know, stretching your body. You know, in Bali. You know, in Bali, stretching, drinking coconut mai tai. Oh, I can't do this. You know, who was, they were right at the office. They were taking bets that I wouldn't be able to finish this retreat. You know, I can't concentrate. I just think too much. This is hopeless. I tried yoga. I tried chi chi. I tried. You know, I'm never going to be able to focus my mind. Too 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 restless. Too anxious. Or we start doubting, you know, maybe this, I don't know about this meditation stuff. It seems too worldly removed. It seems too, I don't know, navel-gazing. I don't know if it works. What is the proof? Where's the research? So our mind starts churning. We start looking around. I don't know if these are my people, you know. And we find, you know, we just start picking faults, you know. I can't survive on cabbage and tofu, like, you know. (laughs) But a particularly insidious form of it is the self-doubt. The coming in the voice of the critic, often the inner critic, the judge. You're not good enough. Your meditation's pathetic. Your posture sucks. And compassion, pfft. You're just mean, you know, or whatever the story is. Anybody got those voices? Yeah. Concentration's terrible. Mindfulness, fail. Compassion, no. Right. As Lucy said to Charlie Brown one day, the trouble with you, Charlie, is that you're Charlie. <laughs> right. That's what the critics said. The trouble with you is it's you. Well, okay. Great. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Came to the, the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. He was sitting. He'd made this resolve to never get up from his seat until he'd fully understand the truth of his experience. And, and some way through that process, I mean, it's metaphorical, this one night, it was probably, I think it was, I imagine, many, 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 many weeks, if not months, of sitting. But the the mm, 
the symbol of this of his of his mind, uh, Mara, the voice of doubt and and ignorance, came to him and said, after he tried to stop seduce him away from from one pointed focus on awakening, and then eventually he said. Who do you think you are to sit on this throne of enlightenment? Who do you think you are? Now, familiar? Who do you think you are to be sitting here at Spirit Rock thinking you're all holy and mighty? Who do you think you are to be blah, 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 right? So you want to watch this voice because that will be severely undermining of our practice. It will make us shrink inside. It will make us withdraw from connecting with the practice, from having faith and confidence. I, I read this cartoon strip sometimes, one of my favorites, called Rhymes with Orange, and it's, it's the, this, this sort of flavors of the doubting voice. One of the cartoon strips, it says, um, a relive embarrassing moments that happened years ago. Right? It's the things we do in meditation, flavored by doubt. Make a list of all the people you regularly disappoint. How many times do you do that in meditation? Especially people who share our last name. Uh, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Right? The, the, the twin sister of the judge is the comparing mind. You come in late, everyone's like, mm. and you're like, God, I'm such a klutz. I'm always late. I'm the only one, and everyone looks like they're enlightened, and I'm like, I can barely feel my feet. You know, the doubting mind. See it. Recognize it. It's a mind state. It's impermanent. It's not who we are. If we believe it, we suffer. So when we feel, see, hear that voice, oh, doubt. Oh, this is Mara. This is a doubt. This is a mindset of doubt. I see you. And then reconnect with our practice. Reconnect with our own goodness. Reconnect with our inherent right to be taking the seat, to be practicing. Why not? One of the outflows of doubt is it can lead to restlessness. If we start doubting what we're doing, we start doubting ourselves, we start doubting the practice, we start doubting this whole thing, we start getting agitated. Well, what am I doing here? And I should be doing something else, and time's precious. And blah, 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 blah. So one of the second primary challenges to this settled presence is restlessness. And some of you have spoken through in here and in the group. Restlessness, anxiety worry right? and we live in a restless culture we live in a in such a busy fast doing over caffeine culture it's actually hard for us to step take our foot off the gas pedal it's hard for us to slow down it feels uncomfortable we're so used to doing being productive that doing nothing is you know can be very anxiety provoking actually takes a while to settle through those layers. One of the reasons we resist meditation daily is because we have to sit through that initial wave, layer of agitation. Right? It, takes a, it takes a few minutes, five or ten minutes sometimes, just to sort of, all right, this is okay. Just, oh, it actually was quite nice sitting here, just putting down the email. Oh, yeah, I remember this, right? Medi- yeah, it's nice. Presence. Mm. Right? But it takes some time. There's a lot of layers we're carrying. Our system is so jacked up a lot of the time. So f- some of the fuels for our restlessness, impatience. Anybody impatient here? Impatient with yourself, impatient with your concentration, impatient with your wayward mind. 
um, uh, the, the sister center to this, uh, they sent it, Insight Meditation Society, they once got a letter that in the early days it was called, addressed, the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> and we like the sound of that, right? Instant meditation. Okay, I'll do this for 10 seconds and then, you know, give me my one-minute meditation app and then I'm good to go. We get impatient about the insight. You know, this is insight meditation. Well, I've been here two days and I haven't really discovered much yet and I really want to know and I'm getting agitated because I haven't seen insight. Of course, the more restless, the more agitated, the less we're going to be settled, the less we're going to see clearly. Sometimes we're just not used to the lack of stimulation. The lack of stimulation, we get restless. You know, our thumbs are twitchy and uh, you, might, you might see that habitual way that we move to the next thing. It's like, okay, done my lunch, okay, now, all right, there's nothing. <laughs> oh, there's just walking. <laughs> Right? But we just, we're, you know, I think our technology just is, is so, you know, deeply wiring us to be, you know, there's a, there's a new thing called slow rage. Right? We've gotten so used to the speed of, of high-speed computer, you know, bandwidths and, and signal that when something takes a microsecond slow, we feel rage. Right? Notice that? You know, something, a page is taking, you know, you're late for a meeting and you've got to download this spreadsheet and... And it's like, and, it's, and you just get the whirring, <laughs> you know, buffering, right? It's a very common phenomenon, that slow rage. We can't deal with going slow. I've seen this, this article of, of Silicon Valley CEOs, a slight caricature, but they have things like the um, stock, take, stock market ticker tape symbol on their vanity mirrors. You know, like on the, on the bottom of the TV, like, and, you know, the... I don't know, CNN, whatever the you know channels are, the, the money channels, um, or people wiring up their showers so they can talk in the shower and they can bring their, their computer into the bath, and you know this this constantly plugged in. You know? I think with common f- cause of restlessness is both the, the way our mind leans forward and back. Right? When particularly forward, any kind of planning, you know, strategizing. You know, we do a lot of planning on retreat because we've got a lot of time. Right? We plan our next career move. We plan our projects. We plan our you know goals for the company. We plan our kids. You know, start, we just do a lot of planning. How many? Re- There's a lot of novels being written on retreat. A lot of books. A lot of talks, right? And then what does it do? It just creates it creates a lot of energy because so, sometimes the, the idea seems so good. It's like, oh, this is going to be this. I'm going to this. I'm going to make it with this idea. <laughs> this book idea is just what everybody needs, whatever that is, you know. And then we get home and we look at our notes and we go, "What was I wasting my time? Like this is just useless for the most part." It's, it's, it's a word for it. It's called vipassana brilliance. When we start, when we get calm and settled, we start getting a lot. We can get some mental clarity, and it seems like you know we we can start reciting poetry, and you know just a lot of clarity and brilliance comes. But it's sort of I'm not sure how brilliant it is actually. You know, it's creative, you know, but it creates a lot of agitation and totally takes us away from what we're doing here. 
We get consumed in it. In the same way that we get caught up in uh, regretting past decisions. Anybody get caught in regret? And then regret is very, very remorse and is very turbulent to the system. So again, with mindful awareness, we can start to see, oh, what takes me out of this well-being? So... This is really helpful, you know, as, as, as the Archbishop Fenelon said, when we start seeing these things, it's a good thing. We see what takes us away from just being at ease right here. It's constantly running to the future. It's constantly re- trying to remake the past. It's doubting myself. Oh, this, this is hard to find ease with. So again, we want to see that the restless thoughts. We want to release them. We want to see the tendencies that take us away from here. When we're restless, we want to orient more towards calm. We want to balance our systems. We want to feel like the stillness of the night, hearing the crickets, feeling the stillness of the room in here. Maybe slower, longer out-breath at times. The out-breath can be very calming, feeling the lower half of your body. Sometimes opening the eyes and just having a very wide, uh, spacious awareness because the, 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 the restlessness is so strong, you want to give it some space to, to relax in. On the other side of that, which we talked a little bit about, is, is, is the slothful, sleepy, but in, in this, as a, as, a, as a hindrance to to um, to presence, to radiant awareness, the 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 the, the quality of, of of what's called sloth as a hindrance is really dullness, which is really when we're not wanting to be here, we're wanting to check out because we don't like it, we don't want it, so we dull out, we numb out. Right? And we want to see the ways that we go to sleep, right? or use sleep, or use numbing out, checking out as a as a way to uh, not be here. So the last two tendencies, um, which are the, you know, really two of the deepest human tendencies are the movement towards and away. And how those movements take us out of what's, what's at rest here. So, so this is an example of how it manifests on retreat. So there's a person meditating. They happen to be meditating in the woods, in the snow, a bit cold, but you know, I'm a nature person, that sounds good to me. And she's got furrow brow, and she's saying to herself, come on, I almost had it. Come on, peace of mind. I don't have a freaking day. Is that it? Is that peace of mind? Anybody recognize that state? Come on, hurry up, calm, God. Come on. <laughs> right? Doesn't work, does it? <laughs> so we bring so this the, the fourth uh hindrance or one of the hindrances is this movement of wanting, grasping, clutching, reaching, demanding that our experience be a certain way that our breath be not controlled, that our body be whatever it is, that our meditation be clear and calm. As soon as we put a demand, 
we've stepped out of presence of radiant awareness into being gripped in desire. Gripped in desire in that movement. Peace is no longer possible. We think if I just get that focused and demanding it will happen. No, all that happens is we create more longing, more demand. And so we're creatures of habit. So what we do in our lives, we do in the practice. So if you're wondering why your mind is so much wandering around fantasies and longings and desires, and it's probably because that's what we do in our lives. It's how the culture runs. It's, how the, it's what fuels the GDP. Wanting stuff, buying stuff. Right? We're sold that that is what will bring us happiness. Well, clearly it doesn't work because we all have a lot of stuff (laughs) and we're still left with an undissatisfaction. So we want to see this mind state that takes us away from ourselves and takes us out of the present, takes us out of a contentment with what's here and thinks, if I only have this, I'll be happy. If only I had fill in the blank, I'll be happy. Right? What would be yours? If only I, if only my knee pain would go away. If only I could concentrate. If only I, there was more money in the bank, I could relax. If only, if only, if only. And often that those desires are fueled because we don't like what's happening. We don't want to be with knee pain and boredom and sadness. So we start fantasizing. Sexual fantasy, vacation fantasy, what I'm going to do after lunch fantasy, my new wonderful life fantasy. And that's, we spend a lot of our lives lost in some imagined future that never comes. It's not very satisfying. It doesn't actually bring the resolution that we're looking for. So a friend of mine was on a long retreat in IMS in the, in the winter. Um, and uh, he was probably about a month in. And he was having a really hard time. He generally has fairly hard time on retreats, but he has particularly what's called a dukkha retreat, where it's just suffering. It's just your body's hurting, your mind's hurting, and it's just hard to be there. And he thought, I need donuts. That will fix the problem. (laughs) And when you're on retreat, as you may have noticed, there's this thing called yogi mind where you have an idea, and it's all sort of slightly distorted and blown out of proportion. And you think, and he really thought, the donuts are going to do it. (laughs) Just If I just get, what are those packets, the white donuts you buy? Um, uh, Like Krispy Kremes or something, I don't know. Huh? Powder. Powder, whatever they come, yeah. Anyhow, so the, the, the center is about three miles, I think, at least a couple of miles from the, from the town. Two or three miles, probably about three miles. And it's freezing. It's like, you know, 10 below or something. It's Massachusetts in winter. And so he gets all dressed up, <laughs> hikes down three miles, gets, uh, I think he gets a pack of 12 donuts. He's a, he's a rapacious eater. <laughs> And, and, and a can of Coke. 
and there's nowhere to go. So he finds he ends up walking back in this little graveyard. So he goes to the graveyard, sits back against the tree, and he starts just hoofing down the donuts, <laughs> swigging them down with coke. <laughs> and uh, I think he gets through the whole packet, <laughs> and then he stops and he's like, "Oh my god, I feel disgusting." <laughs> And then he's feeling sick all day. <laughs> he's been eating this super healthy food, and then, you know, 12 donuts and a can of cola. <laughs> and he got it. It's like, all oh, right, that's the force of desire. We get gripped, you know, whatever our, whatever our version of going to the store, three, five mile round trip to get into freezing colder winter, right? We all have the ways that we get gripped and we act it out. Believing this is going to do it, whatever our version of it. And in the microcosm of retreat, you know, we it's like I've got to get that walking spot. There better be nobody in my walking place because that's mine, and I'm going to bust out of here as soon as it rings the bell because that's my. You know, it just you know our, our world gets very small. Right? My dining room seat. Who's in my dining room seat? <laughs> we're funny aren't we but it's true we, we get really petty it's, it's this habit of grasping you know in our lives it, it, you know, it's, it's, of course it's much larger you know, it can be around power or promotion or money or you know and again nothing, there's nothing wrong with any of these things in themselves what we're looking at is the grip right? the compulsion right? the, 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 the being compelled to that is torture and, and suffering. No presence, no awareness. I was teaching a retreat in India some years ago and um, this uh, young man came up to me and he was reporting his experience and he said, uh, he was reporting to the group and he said, you know, yesterday was just, the, it, was, it was the best day I was, you know, halfway through the retreat and I was concentrated and I was loving it and I was really focused and I just and I started thinking oh, I want to do more of this I could after the retreat I could go to Burma you know and then maybe ordain as a monk and do a long retreat and then it might, this experience would be really fantastic and then and he got so excited and so agitated that whatever calm and stillness and presence he developed, he was just all like a mess because he was planning his trip to Burma and he was getting his visa and, and then he couldn't wait to and then his whole meditation went to pieces. Concentration, focus. And then he wanted to leave the retreat because he was like fed up. He went from you know, presence and loving and grasping to hating and wanting to leave right, in the space of a few hours. Right? That's the wanting mind unbridled. Of course, we look at the state of the world and we see the tremendous pain and suffering that arises when people demand and, and grasp things. Right? We see that on a nation state, warfare, greed, the annexing of territories, um, horrific exploitation, uh, child labor, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Sexual exploitation, trafficking. Right? This is all fueled by the force of desire, force of grasping, the force of greed. Right? So we're seeing it in a very small, somewhat a minor and petty microcosm here, but it's the same force. It's the same compulsion. 
So the reason we're doing this work is to understand these forces so we can free them so we're one less person in the planet who's not gripped by self-centered greed and compulsion and not creating suffering as a result of that. And what happens when we're in that grip is we feel deficient, we feel a lack, we feel I will not be complete until I have this experience, get this thing, right? be with this person. And that's tremendously suffering because it leaves us with an ongoing sense of deficiency, an ongoing sense of happiness is not available till I have these things. So we postpone happiness for some idea. And what what we rob ourselves from is the understanding and the knowing that happiness, true happiness, is not dependent on anything external, not dependent on anything that changes, that that we can access that sense of well-being in our own nature right now. There's a beautiful line from this Tibetan teacher, Gendra Rinpoche, says, happiness is not a thing or a place, but accompanies you every moment in relaxation and letting go. As soon as we relax this tight fist of grasping, open relaxation, happiness is available. So we want to pay attention to that force. We're not yearning to judge it. It's not a problem in itself we're just bringing the light of awareness as soon as we bring the light of awareness we see oh desire oh longing oh sexual fantasy oh craving attachment these are just powerful human tendencies of course i'm not dismissing the you know there's tremendous desire in the world for good for peace, for justice, for social justice, economic justice, for compassion, to serve and to relieve suffering. Right? These are, there's many, many beautiful and wonderful, wholesome desires. Right? We're not talking about uprooting those. We're talking about the desires that lead to more suffering for ourselves or others. And they're not problems in themselves, these, these, these grips in the mind, and if they're seen with a kind attention. It's a great line from Tilopa, who was an Indian uh, meditation master. He said to his disciple, Naropa, he said, it's not the outer objects that bind us, but our inner attachment to them. It's not the things in the world and all the shiny objects and people and things that we want that are problem. It's, uh, it's the relationship to them. Right? So it's not about getting rid of everything. It's about cultivating a wise relationship with life, with experience, with things, with people, with the world, with work. So notice in these next few days how this force of 
desire, wanting, demanding, expecting, grasping, is operating. Notice when it comes, feel it. Feel when you're clenched, right? There's a, there's a grip. When we're, any flavor of wanting is a slight contraction. And that's why he says, as soon as we loosen this tight fist of grasping, open relaxation is available. So notice the tension when we want something, even if it's, I want to get to the front of the lunch line. There's a little tension, right? Got to get seconds. There's a little tension. And these are very minor, somewhat inconsequential desires, but we can, we, we're using meditation and retreat as a metaphor for life. It's a microcosm of experience. What happens here, what happens in here, is exactly the same out there, you know. So we want to understand, so when we're at work in the boardroom, teaching or whatever it is your work is, we can see these same forces working within us and not acting them out. Seeing, oh, look at this desire for donuts. (laughs) Whatever your metaphor for donuts, whatever your thing is for donuts, you know. And we all have our donuts, right? We all get caught in something. And the converse of that is the, is, the, is the other primary movement of the mind is, is aversion. Right? The moving away from experience. With desire, we move towards because it's pleasant. Right? The sexual fantasy, the food, the person experience. We experience pleasantness, so we, that's why we fantasize and keep spinning out. Because we're addicted to the pleasant, the pleasure. Even though it's fleeting and doesn't last, we're still addicted. The converse with aversion, we are repelled by the unpleasant. Just think of how many things you've experienced as unpleasant today. Right? Sore knees, aching back, tiredness, restlessness. Uh, what, on the last retreat I was teaching, uh, it was a nature retreat, and this one person was talking about, um, he had a particular uh, um, aversion to this meditator who was wearing those you know, nylon pants, you know, like those waterproof pants. So he'd call them swishy pants because he'd come in late and he would just <laughs> walking around. <laughs> you know, and people wear that nylon stuff and it's really loud. Right? It can be really annoying. So when the mind is caught in aversion, it will look for anything unpleasant or it will be triggered by anything unpleasant and it will attack, you know, metaphorically or mentally. Right? And so how many times have you been, you know, sitting here nice and calm and happy and then someone starts, I don't know, breathing too loudly, for God forbid, you know, or moving even worse, you know, and you're like... <laughs> Right, and we want to kill him. It's like shut up! I'm trying. I was just, I was just about there. <laughs> right, we're so human. <laughs> right, it's, it's, it's so vulnerable to being triggered. Right, so 
not to judge that, have compassion for that, but to also see, wow, you know, I might look out in the I might read the paper and look at all these people who do heinous things of aggression and violence, and I think, how could they do that? And here we are sitting on a meditation retreat covering cultivating loving kindness, and we want to hit someone because they move too much, right? It's the same force, right? We just have a, hopefully a little more impulse control. But it's the same force of unpleasantness, aversion, striking out, right? If it's unpleasant, we do two things. We strike out towards it. We want to get rid of it. Or we want to avoid it and we, and we retreat. We avoid, we numb out, we check out, we uh, repress, we suppress. Or we go towards the object with anger, with rage, with hatred, with judgment, with reactivity, with blame. I was, I was that close to Nibbana until they sneezed. And they, and they, you know. So as we were exploring today in the meditation, the unpleasantness and the unpleasantness, the reason why these are so powerful, even though it's such a seemingly benign part of our experience, based on the unpleasantness Without mindfulness, there's reactivity. And that reactivity can lead to saying things we regret, sending emails we regret. Anybody sent an email when they're reactive? They got an email, didn't like it. They got some criticism from um, tapping on the keys and boom, we hit reply. Dead, damn it. Oh, I hit reply all. Oh, God. And then, and then the fallout from that email, right? I mean, it's, it happens a lot. You know, when we've lost that between stimulus and response, there's a space. When we've lost that space, we've lost that space of radiant awareness. Reactivity comes in and we cause more suffering. This is why we practice. Right? So I'm again using very benign examples. But we extrapolate those minor examples to, you know, we can, we can, ruin, a, we can ruin a friendship, a relationship, by speaking and reacting to something we don't like in a fit of you know, impulsive rage and we can destroy a 20-year friendship by something that we say. You know, this happens. You know, we can get so reactive, so caught, right? so reactive to our loved ones, to our children. Right? I knew someone who was a friend of a friend, actually, who lost... Um, they uh, they uh, working for a big tech company before it went public, uh, went public, um, but before his stock options invested, he was due to make a huge amount of money um, and, and had a, got a new boss, got into a lot of contentious rows with his boss and um, ended up, you know, in one of those, the heat of those, row, in the heat of those rows, he said, you know, I can't do this anymore, I quit. And his boss said, okay, you're out. And his uh, stock options had invested and he lost tens of millions of dollars. So it happens, right? So we come to practice to see these reactive tendencies. And what's liberating about mindfulness is it it allows um, us to see all the ways that we leave ourselves, that we check out from this moment, that we get caught in reactivity, and we suffer. 
And so why mindfulness is so powerful is it because it helps us see the ways that we react and the ways that we can be free. You know, just that line from Thich Nhat Hanh, happiness is available, please help yourself. So when we're having a moment of unpleasantness, difficulty, we notice, we feel the aversion. Oh, aversion is like this. Hatred is like this. Fear is like this. Rejection is like this. We can feel that in the body. We don't have to act it out. So the, the, the radical opportunity of mindfulness is we can allow experience, we can feel it, and we don't act it out. So it actually, you know, and these things are waves. We have a, some pleasantness, some grasping, desire, longing, and it fades. And we have some physical pain and some reaction and rage and fear, and it passes through like a wave, and we can stay steady in the middle of it. That is very liberating. When we go back home into our lives and, you know, we, we're met with difficulty, with tragedy, with stress, we find we have some capacity to, to meet it, to sit. This is, this is from Suzuki. I'll, I'll close in a minute. I'm going to share a couple of things. This is from Suzuki Roshi, who's a wonderful was a wonderful Zen teacher. He said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there's some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you understand the power of your practice. So we sit because we're practicing for these harder times, right? which is part of life and will inevitably come day after day. Difficulties, stresses, difficult communications, body pain, heart pain, etc. So we practice to see, we practice to, mindfulness allows us to disengage, to, to find space of non-reactivity to life, to experience, that then allows a responsiveness to life. So I'll close with this poem from Jennifer Wellwood, who, local teacher and friend, and she summarizes it really well. She says, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition, each experience I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. And this is what happens with mindfulness and and the obstacles. Each hindrance, each obstacle I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. It becomes just the next thing, appearance, phenomena to be with. And that's the liberating power of our practice. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
sitting in sitting in the seat of whatever's here, tiredness, curiosity, reflection, <clears throat> achiness. Can we meet this condition with awareness, with kindness? Can we rest in radiant awareness, simply knowing the truth of experience and the peace that's already waiting right here? So thank you for your attention. We'll have some walking and then a final sit. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.